It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to Sunday Civics. You are live with L. Joy Williams your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist. And I am so glad that you took the time to come to class this morning and a class it shall be. We are gonna have Dr. Bettina Love, who's an abolitionist and freedom dreamer, as she described. She is the William F. Russell Professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's the best-selling author of We Want to Do More Than Survive. She is the co-founder of the Abolitionist Teaching Network, whose mission is to develop and support teachers and parents fighting injustice within their schools and communities and has been granted over 250,000 to abolitionists across the country. She has a new book coming out, Punish for Dreaming, specifically focused on how school reform harms black children and how we heal. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You should too. Because education, (laughs) education is always one of the issues that is at the center of political debates. And it's been like this for generations. Public education, although we have lofty sayings and goals of what public education should be, the great equalizer, the foundation of our democracy, its fundamental right for all citizens, all of that stuff, similar to what we say about America in general, it has continued to be a political football that's tossed back and forth between the federal government, state governments, local governments get involved, and then politicians, doesn't matter what political party, also use it as a way to mobilize people um, using fear, using other things to create dissension for their own benefit. And we find ourselves at another election cycle of whipping people into a frenzy about something being taken away from your children or your children being indoctrinated by information or being exposed to different types of people and cultures and how dare you learn about these histories and things like that. At the same time, we also have the the conversation on who should actually control public education, how it's funded, the standards that should be set. Should it be done on a local level? Should we have national standards? And not to mention adding the additional contention that goes in there about race (laughs) and class, right? Because then when the civil rights movement and the push for desegregation, in addition to, as I mentioned, the class struggles of whether or not we should, we being uh, local government, state governments, the federal government, get involved in public education and make sure there's some equity here. And part of the struggle for civil rights, the modern civil rights movement was not only about voting, but also about brown public education. That's how we get to the Supreme Court decisions of Brown v. Board and how the federal government steps in and takes a bigger role, which n- before then didn't have such a big role in the public education process. 
And so we're going to talk about all of that (laughs) because fast forward and now everything is about reform. Everything is about how do we integrate school systems? And that's always always been something burning for me about that because living in New York City where you have way more people of color living in the city. And so you're saying that we need to sit next to white people in order to get a better public education. Something's wrong about that, right? Like there should be some equity across the board, particularly in places like New York City who do have large school districts with are pretty diverse. So as we embark on this journey again, <laughs> I wanted us to be informed about this. We've seen the headlines. Again, I believe the media news to a certain extent also um, contributes to fanning the flames of what is happening. But we always need a level set and going into this election cycle where people are running whole campaigns for re-election or for election based upon what their view is on public education, which is interesting given, you know, Congress's limited role, federal government's role in that aspect. But governors and um, senators and your local legislators will be running on these issues. And so it's really important to be informed about what is happening, but also how we can ask different questions of those we're going to elect, but also how do we ask different questions and what we're actually fighting for in our local communities and local control of our public education system. So buckle in. Thank you for coming to class and joining us again on Sunday Civics. And I invite you after we take this quick break to join us as we embark on this conversation with Dr. Bettina Love, who is the author of the upcoming book, Punished for Dreaming. We'll be right back. As promised, one of my favorite subjects, education, which is, I feel like it's the, the, the front of headlines, like every 10 years, every generation or something, there's another battle as it pertains to education. I think the last one was like no child left behind and like states being in, in you know, the federal government telling states what to do. And then everybody was all in an uproar and it felt, you know, funneled into a presidential election. I think that was the last time. And now we're at another period where education is in the headlines again, and it's being used as a political football again. Um, And it has something to do with the federal government and states again. And if you remember when I first began the show and when I revisit uh, the subject of education often, we talk about education being one of those tensions in government and politics because of the federal government and state and local governments. It's going to always be contentiousness. It's also one of the things that states spend the most money on, education, mm-hmm. healthcare. So mm-hmm. it's always going to be used as a political football. And we have, as I introduced her earlier, Dr. Bettina Love, who is joining us to talk about her new book, which is coming out next week. So yes, go pre-order. Well, <laughs> well. <laughs> go pre-order. So which means I have not read it yet. I just need to do this disclosure because y'all know I like to read before the uh, person comes on. But this just means that I have to have her back because undoubtedly 
I'm gonna find a page or a passage and be like, mm -mm, Doctor Love, what is what what is we this, Doctor Love? Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me and the work that you do. It's amazing to be here. Thank you. So yes, I'm sure that as I flip through them pages, I'm gonna be doing some highlights and some underlining. <laughs> we can come back and have a further discussion because as is described in the, the, the description, this book must be 11,000 pages because it says <laughs> that you're covering a whole bunch of stuff. So clearly this is the new Encyclopedia Britannica of education. Well, I hope so. It's, it's, it's 300 pages or so. I hope people see it as a definitive examination of the last 40 years, particularly the last 60, but really a concentration in the last 40 years of education reform. So I really try to take people through the last 40 years through the stories of amazing Black folk and how reform actually played out in their lives. So it's not just a book about reform and policy, policy after policy. It looks at real people. And this is how this policy played out. This is how this family was impacted by this policy. These are the stories that we tell when we think about No Child Left Behind or how entrepreneurs have taken over education. So I try to use real people to talk about the last 40 years of education reform and what it has done and how harmful it has been, particularly to Black children. Well, you know, I'm going to start with this question on why, why do we need to reform education in the first place? Um, before, you know, and I want to get to, you, you mentioned something to me before we came on air that you want to talk about education, particularly in Black communities before Brown v. Board. I want to talk about that. But why, why did education reform become the new thing, particularly politically, that every, every governor, every mayor, every president, everybody wants to do some kind of school reform, reforming the schools. We need to, we need to get it right. Why we ain't got it right? So, you know, I want to, I was born in 1979. I'm 44 years old. And I think one thing people don't absolutely know or might find shocking as a department of education, as a full-fledged department was created in 1979. That's it. So this, this, this idea that, you know, of, of formal public education and we got states and all of this stuff and there's a place where it all, that was started in 1979. But there's something really critical that happens in the 80s that I think we have to understand. So this word reform, first and foremost, is a word that we kind of use as a catch-all to try to say it can fix anything. So it's not just education reform, it's crime reform, education reform, welfare reform, immigration reform, right? We kind of throw reform at the end which means somebody's going to fix it. And we kind of just use that word as a catch-all. But really what, what I try to describe in the book is that you can't reform something that was never meant for you. Mm. And so when you think about the educational system, you know, people will say we need, it needs to be fixed. Some people will say that it's, it's unfixable because it was never meant for Black folks. It was never meant for women. It was never meant for folks who are disabled. It was never meant for diverse folks who have our divergent thinkers. It wasn't never meant for us. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to take a system and put something in there that was never meant for you. So that system is going to shoot you back out. And what mm -hmm. do we try to do? We try to come up with a system again. We try to come up with equity, diversity, inclusion. We try to come up with caution, relevant pedagogy. We keep trying to come up with ways in which that we can be included in a system that was never meant for us. So how do you reform something that doesn't want you there? So that's the first thing about reform is to say that the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way it was designed. And we keep trying to fix something 
And when you reform it, you're only really dealing with the edges. You're never going to get to the core. So that word reform is a really a word that doesn't do much for justice. Reform and justice do not go hand in hand. Reform and liberation do not go hand in hand. But when you think about the 80s, I just want to talk about some really, you know, touch points that we should be thinking about of how we got to reform, particularly in education. 1980, there's a report, there's some language going around in the right around how public schools are failing us, public schools are not doing well, how we need to defund public schools, how we need to privatize public schools. That's happening around 1980, before Reagan takes office. Reagan takes office in 1981. By 1982, you have the war on drugs. Now, let's put a pin on that kind of report that's just out here. By 1982, you have the war on drugs, which we know is a war on Black people, right? We see this thing of mass incarceration, what Erica Minor would call targeted mass incarceration start to happen. We don't have... Uh, the criminal justice system, we have what folks in abolition would call the criminal punishment system. A racist criminal punishment system is the, is the makings of this with the war on drugs. And we know Black folks are not at somehow disproportionately using drugs, selling drugs. No, not at all. But we are over-policed, over-arrested, and over-incarcerated for right, being Black, basically. So what happens with that is you have the war on drugs. By 1983, Reagan releases a report called A Nation at Risk. Now, that 1983 report picks up that data from 1980 that was skewed, that was trying to make public education seem as terrible as it possibly could. So that data and that skewed data becomes A Nation at Risk. And this is a monumental report that changes education forever. Because what it, what it says is that our schools are failing. They're failing. They're failing so badly that we need, it might be a national attack on us, like the fear monger language that they use. The same year in 1983, what also happened? DARE program. Like, I'm old enough to be in the DARE program. What was the I, DARE re, program? I was good. Yeah, we're the same. We're, we're the, I'm a year older. Yeah. Right. So I the DARE, DARE. DARE program. The DARE program says, hey, we got bad people and we got good people. And, and, and this officer, Mr. Friendly, is going to come in and tell you who's the bad guys and who's the good guys. Hey, then we'll give you a T-shirt if you snitch on your parents, snitch on your community. Right? But who created the DARE program? Daryl Gates. Who was Daryl Gates? The police chief during the Rodney King assass almost assassination, almost execution folks who tried to kill Rodney King, that is the police chief at that time. The same police chief that said Black people have different esophagus, so you could put them in the chokehold. The same police officer, the same police chief that said during the LA Olympics, we're going we're gonna to mandate Black folks and Brown folks to stay in their communities and not let them go. That begins, that's the person who puts the D.A.R.E. program in every school across the nation. The D.A.R.E. program has no data that they work. We also have data that says if you're in the D.A.R.E. program and complete the D.A.R.E. program, you have a higher chance of using drugs. And that is the D.A.R.E. program. So that's 1980, 1982, 1983. By 1984, Reagan releases another report with skewed, misleading data called Classroom in the Ca Chaos in the Classroom, which says that these children, again, are they're, they're out of order, they're ruled, and they need police in schools. So in the 80s, you start to see crime reform and education reform start to work in tandem, hand in hand. But what's also happening at this time, moving into like the 80s to the 90s, is you start to see language about Black children that is disposable of them. Crack babies, thugs, and super predators. So what kind of education system do you create when you believe that Black children are godless, 
when you believe they have no conscience, right? Where Hillary Clinton in 1996 gets up and says that they are super president. These are young kids with no conscience. And so, and so they start to create educational policy that informs these ideas. And you start to see how broken window theory, zero tolerance, three strikes, like all of this language, no excuses, all of this language starts to permeate in education. And we start to see how these policies change education forever when we are now being punished for dreaming. And that's what I argue in the book is how crime reform and education reform merged to throw mm. generation of children, my generation, right? I'm the hip hop generation. I'm the post-civil rights generation. We are the generation of the dream. And what happens to us? And I don't think we've talked about that. I think we've talked about the war on drugs from a criminology standpoint, from a prison standpoint, from a health standpoint. But have we talked about what this time period did in terms of education to black children? And I don't think we've ad adequately investigated how they threw a generation of children away and how you get where we are now. Where New York, right, in 2009, 2019, excuse me, New York City had 5,000 police in school, making New York City the making New York City schools the fifth largest police department in the country. I'm not talking about NYPD yet. I'm just talking about New York City schools at 5,000. Right, making it the fifth largest police department in the country. How do we have schools now where there are cameras, dogs, surveillance equipment? How do we have schools where, uh, you know, we talk about the school to prison pipeline. What I argue in the book, there is no school to prison pipeline. It's no pipeline. You already in it. You sitting in it. What folks would call the school to prison nexus, what I call carcerality being inevitable. Even the way we talk to children are, is around carcerality. When we tell a child, you don't do this, you're going to jail. Right, we, that's how we position things with kids. And so the book really wants us to try to reckon with the educational system that we've created for the last 40 years and to say it's only been 40 years of high state standardized testing, charter schools, vouchers, lotteries, no child left behind, race to the top, uh, teach for America. Like these things have only been around 40 years. So it's not ubiquitous. It's not this is how it's always been done. We have an opportunity to change it and we have to work towards that now if we want the next years to be different. But I think too often we look at education and say to ourselves, oh, this is just how it's been. No, this is not how it's been. This is the only 40 years. It's our generation. And so I wanted the book to really focus on the history of the last 40 years and folks uh, of our generation who saw this change on our backs. Mm. You know, I, I just had a recent conversation where we were talking about immigration and Reagan comes up even in that um, discussion about like how we changed immigration policy. Mm. It ain't no joke. I, 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 I <laughs> don't okay. have to talk about what Reagan did to so much. You, you know, student loan debt. Here we are talking about student loan debt. That was Reagan. That was Reagan who said, listen, we're not paying for you anymore. We're not paying for this. He gutted uh, aid in California and then took that same model to the, to, to the White House. Right, right. So, you know, let, let me let, let's go back um, because you mentioned that there is a particular part in the book that I'm interested in reading and talking about pre Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Dr. Lester Young, who's a regent here in the state of New York, has talked about is that there has not been a focus on a recommitment to public education. 
and how public education really, he, you know, he talks about, you know, the founding of sort of public education is how it is heavily borrowed from how Black people, like how That's we set up some public education in Black communities for going from, you know, uh, free Black folks to post, you know, during Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction, right? So what was, if, if a principal, if a parent, if somebody is saying, well, how come we can't just go back and focus on our own children, on our own community, and they want to know what that looked like, what mm -hmm. did public education pre-Brown v. Board in an all-Black community look mm -hmm. like? Thank you for that question, because I think if we're going to get solutions, we have to go back to what we had. Like, we can't And just... that worked. Right, that worked, that our ancestors, our ancestors gave us a playbook. We have a playbook. We just have to go back to it. And so I want to start with what you said, like, newly freed enslaved folk, what's the first thing that they, they built? Schools and churches, schools and churches. Institutions. Institutions, particularly in the South, right? White folks were not concerned about educating their children after the Civil War. Black folks said, no, 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 all children need to be educated. And the very idea of public education in the South is a, that's Black folks. Du Bois talks about this in Reconstruction. He says there is no public education without the Negro in the South. So the first thing that they're doing is building schools, institutions, HBCUs, teaching institutions, training teachers. That's the first thing that they start to do. Then as we move on to, let's say, the 1900s, we start to see Black teachers who are going off to some of the top institutions to learn how to teach too. So they got the HBCs, they started to go to teacher's college, they started to go to Harvard. They're going all over to become teachers. So you start to see a group of teachers who are not just, you know, taught without being highly skilled. These are highly credentialed teachers with masters and PhDs coming to teach Black children to their highest potential, as Vanessa Suttle Walker would say, right? To their highest mm -hmm. potential. And so you start to see this. Give me some, let me just give you some data. Uh, this is Leslie Farnwick's work out of Howard. She says, you know, if you look from in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, Black teachers make up in the South, particularly the 17 states that are still segregated, 30 to 50% of all educators. We're 50%. Linda Tillman works. She talks about, if you look at, at that time period, Black teachers making up around 89 to 90,000 teachers teaching 2 million Black children. And we are talking about Black excellence, Black ingenuity, Black creativity. Using the work now of Goldie Muhammad, I'm thinking about, you know, criticality and just the literacy clubs that we had. We knew education was liberation and we took it seriously. Now, here comes Brown. Brown versus the Board of Education. This was a critical case for really Black people in this country. I would argue it was a critical case for the United States to say we're a democracy, right? You can't, you can't tell everybody in the world what to do, and everybody in the world looks back at you and says, that segregated schools, get out of here. So, <laughs> right, Russia's like, get out of here. So you start to see propaganda campaigns all around the world, particularly in Russia and these other places that are saying, at the United States talking gang gang that they're so big and bad. Look what they do to black people. Russia don't love black people, but they're trying to make the United States look terrible. 
That's why the Brown decision is unanimous. Because they have to put a line in the sand to say, this country is not what they're painting us to be. Now it is, but this is politics at its very, at, at its course. And so what happens is that one group comes to the table to integrate and the other group leaves. And we start to see segregation academies created. Many private schools around the country are created after Brown. We start to see that these private schools actually get tax breaks. Yep. For, I mean, segregation academies. We see a proliferation of the suburbs. Like before Brown versus the Board of Education, we had suburbs, but we didn't have suburbs, right? We see a proliferation of suburbs and folks moving out to the suburbs. And we see the resources, the taxes, the property values, all of those things. And it pretty the much the towns happen, the right. you know, like those communities being built right. and government resources, city yeah. resources, yeah. state resources, federal resources being used to build those communities. When I say resources, I mean they had uh, public works campaigns because the 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 roads had to be built had to be in built. those areas. The utilities had to be connected, right? Like that is public dollars being used to create communities institutions um, that would only service a certain population um, of the country. This is a very, very important thing to, and the reason why I stopped you here, because when we say, oh, resources are things that were used to create or to continue the proliferation of segregation, you know, I believe in giving examples and like, you know, naming it. Because then when we get to the reparations conversation, when people talk about, oh, you know, I didn't personally, you know, they always go back to slavery, right? Mm -hmm. And then, like all this stuff. And so it was like, well, this government didn't do it now. I'm like, yeah, yeah, same government. We didn't have a, we didn't have a reformation or a revolution or no, same, <laughs> like same government, mm -hmm. right? Contributed, the same city, the same yep. state contributed yep financial resources and oh. building institutions that continued the practice of segregation, racism, and, mm -hmm. and, and all of it, right? So you can't divorce. You personally, it may not come out of your personal bank account, but mm -hmm. these institutions were built using that public, those public dollars and those public resources. Those mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and so like you said, they build their own cities, they build their own townships with money that was taken from the city. And so you kind of, you, you gutted public education, you, you gutted black education because then black teachers were not hired. They were systematically fired from the system. Uh, we know that we lost, particularly in the South, somewhere upwards to 38,000 black educators after Brown. We also lost 90% of black principals after Brown. Mm-hmm. There is no way we can even ever measure what we lost after Brown, because we got to be very clear that Brown effectively eliminated the black teacher workforce in this country. When we used to be 50 percent of the teaching population and now black folks make upwards to possibly 8.2 percent, black male teachers make less than 2 percent. Brown gutted black, the black teaching force. But also we want to be clear that Brown also took away the community, right? The civics, because Black teachers were civic agents at that time. They were teaching. They were racial uplift. They were helping the church. They were helping the, the community. They were working seven days a week because they understood that their role, was, their role was not just about educating children. It was about educating children. 
It was about their liberation. And that was their job to say, this is our community. How do we grow our community? How do we love on our community? How do we make our community sustainable? So they were doing the civic work of the community as teachers. And they were integrated in the community in that particular type of way. And so we lost so much when we integrated schools. And all, all I want people to understand is that integration is not a bad idea. But when one group comes to the table and the other group leaves the table and takes all their toys with them, what are we left with? And then you say that, hey, you don't even get to play anymore. You don't get to teach anymore. You don't get the resources anymore. And so the, the thing that I'm always stuck with that keeps me when I try to think about these things is what Lindsay Stewart says. She says that, you know, white folks can't imagine black life without white intervention. So it always have to be some type of white intervention and if without white intervention, they think our lives are tragic. And so you always have some type of white intervention, like reform, mm -hmm. that moves what we are trying America to do. Right. <laughs> These are interventions from problems they call. <laughs> give it, wait, that give opportunities for people outside of, okay, I'm sorry. Let, let me move because I don't. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'm just sorry because this is Black people in Teach for America too. I just, mm, just wanna... well, it's, not, it's not about Black it's people. Not, but it's yeah. about the institution it's and about the institution, yeah. right? Why is the institution Ooh. created? You created a problem. Then here you come talking about you're going to be the savior of that problem. Won't you understand how you created the problem? But again, same thing, same thing that is happening now on issues with, you know, climate change and government reform. Like, again, it's all creating, you know, you go do this. Pro I'm going to it's continued. At, it, it really is continued institution building and community building and generational development. Right. What we've seen time and time again is that this country creates a crisis, blames black folks and brown folks for the crisis and women and queer folks and trans folks for the crisis and then want to say they have the solutions for the crisis. Right. Right. It's like, no, no. How about yeah. you leave it alone? Yeah. <laughs> just, just leave us alone. It's alone. Okay. We're going to take a break right here. We're talking to Dr. Bettina Love, who is the author of the upcoming book, Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. We're going to take a break and we'll come back to the conversation. How can it be? Back to Sunday Civics. We are talking to Dr. Bettina Love, who is the author of the upcoming book, Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. She is the William F. Russell Professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, and the best-selling author of We Want to Do More Than Survive. We're continuing our conversation, <laughs> talking about just wanting to live, just wanting to thrive in a way that supports our communities, ourselves. We just want to be, you know, left alone like everybody else and being able to uh, live without the added barriers uh, that are put in our way. But Dr. Love, you say you have something in the book that speaks to that. I have a chapter in the book called uh, White People Save Yourselves. And what I argue in the book is pretty much what you just said, is that Black folks, we good. We are good. If we have not shown this country anything, 
in the last 400 years is that we're going to make a way out of no way. We're going to make a way. We are so smart, so intelligent, so engineered. We just engineer stuff. We are the blueprint for justice. So all we are asking really is for you to leave us alone. Remove the barriers. Just re if you want justice, if you want justice for us, just remove the barriers. Stop putting all these barriers in our way and just leave us alone and watch what we do. Look what we have done under these conditions. Could you imagine right. what we could do if you leave us alone? And how you would benefit. You would benefit from that. You know, black women help this country put a man on the moon. You benefit from that. The Black Panthers introduced free lunch. You benefit from that. The South introduced schooling. You benefit from that. The Black Panthers introduced, along with Brown and uh, indigenous folks, right, a patient bill of health. You benefit from that. You are benefiting from us wanting to stretch democracy, wanting it to live up to itself. You benefit. And so the idea, you know, you know, it really pisses me off when people are like, you know, they're just takers. Who the guy? Do you know I mean, how much it, right. you know? We don't even gotta get into slavery and all of that. Like that's no. that's all said. Just to think about the contributions and the inventions that we had. You don't have heart transplant. Like just the things that we have done. How could you not teach our history? How can you not teach us? And how can you not understand we are American history? We've done all of these things in the parameters of your nation. So it, it's just, it's wild to me. It's just wild yeah. to me. Well, you know, I say, I have this joke, and, you know, I say to my husband and my friends all the time, um, you know, just about the burden of having to just fight to just exist. I was like, this is why the aliens don't come. This is why we can't explore the rest of the ocean and we can't explore the rest of space because I'm too busy having to be president of the dang on NAACP trying to fight for basic human rights and like in social justice on stuff we should have figured out already. So I'm so wasting it. Like, yeah. What 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 could we do collectively as a human race if we didn't have the barrier of racism yes. and bigotry yes. and sex, yes. like if we could just get rid of that, we could come together and really like, really do some amazing, amazing things if we're able to do that. Like mm -hmm. we should have evolved yes. from this BS yes. by now, yes. right? Like, you know, like every time I see like where we are in terms of the education debate, where we are in terms of the immigration debate, like where we are in those places, sometimes I just read them just like, oh my God, I'm stuck in this. <laughs> like, you know, and I just want, um, I don't know if you play video games or play a thing or whatever, where you just want to, do I press X and A to just like make the characters evolve faster? <laughs> like just do something to advance the time, something. We don't want to do this. I want to like, I want to just sit and read books and do 3D printing and crafting. Yeah. But right. no, I got to go out and fight for social justice and for a more equitable education system because y'all haven't evolved yet. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And here you we know, are. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. But I, you know, I think about this point that you made just a few minutes ago about how Brown v. Board sort of began the dismantling 
of community and of investing. And I'm sure there are other things that sort of contribute to it. Um, but obviously Brown v. Board um, integration in a lot of different other places in a lot of other institutions sort of began that process, right? Um, where no longer did you have the plumber and the banker and the teacher and, you know, everybody sort of living in the same, you know, instance and sort of investing in those institutions. We get to a period now where, you know, you're a New Yorker can, you know, how many people go to a regular institution, be it a church, a community center, or any of those things, how many people that that's an institution that they're at weekly, that they're at daily besides the institution of their job, you know, or school, right? So we've kind of dismantled those community institutions. And so you sort of have this fracture as you could say. And so it's also difficult to build uh, independent schools in that atmosphere, right? Because, you know, we have charter school, we have independent schools. And one of the things Dr. Young said is like, you know, before this period, we always had choice, right? You could go to public school, you can go to a Catholic school, you can go, like, you can do different things, but it becomes a false choice when this, those institutions don't have the resources to operate effectively and also have a vision and a commitment to educating children, no matter what they look like or where they come from. So how do we rebuild in a fractured state? So I say this in the book, I say that, you know, school choice for black folks are the scraps once white folks have divvied up what they want. And then they call it school choice. These are not choices. Like I said, these are false choices. Sending my child to this school that doesn't have this, sending my child to this school that doesn't have this, or, you know, I just, I just want to just say that most schools in the United States right now don't have plenty of water. You have schools in the United States right now where the chemicals inside the building, the HVACs are so outdated, the chemicals that kill all the rodents, are actually doing a disservice to the children's bodies and the teachers' bodies that are in the schools right now. Uh, our schools got rated a D plus by the Society of Civic Engineers in this country. So when we think about just the conditions that many of our students are walking into, this is the United States of America, right? Our students are not supposed to be going into schools that don't have clean water. Well, we have cities still that don't have clean water. Right. So first we have to understand and we have to call this what it is. This is not like, you know, I, what I try to talk about is, you know, we use this language that doesn't allow us to talk about the real harm that's happening in school. So we'll say, you know, this is a funding gap, not a gap. This is systematically being done to hoard resources away from black and brown children. It's not a gap. This is how this is this is what you are, are intending it for me to be. Or, you know, we have an achievement gap. We don't have an achievement gap. You have not adequately funded these individuals at the same level that you funded these individuals, and now you're gonna call it a gap. Yeah, you're gonna get a gap. But we don't have the resources, we don't have the teachers. You gutted our teaching system, and you put the students who need the most with the least experienced teachers. Right. So we have to talk about how we have gotten here to really get at what we need for these solutions. And so in the book, I really try to critique reform. I try to critique these policies so people understand 
how and this language is used. Or, you know, we say we have at-risk students. At risk of what? We never say who they at risk of. Or, you know, I'm a first-generation college student. Are you a first-generation college student or the first group they let in? Mm. Like, so changing our language in terms of how first we... Impulse. I remembered in changing my language even about, you know, integration, you know, in thinking about, like, how in New York City public schools specifically does integration work when we're majority of the school population, mm -hmm. right? So is it just merely sitting next to a white person makes my education better? Mm, mm -hmm. No. no. <laughs> it's just like, and, and what the original focus was, was on like us having the resources, not necessarily the, mm -hmm. like me sitting next to a white person just automatically mm -hmm. makes things better. That goes back to our saying of like, the, the white man's ice is colder. Like, I don't need to sit next to him you know, or her or whatever in order to do it. I just need the equitable opportunities and resources so that I can flourish in the way that I need to. So that's first and foremost about solutions. All right, we had a, a study came out by Ed Builder in 2016 that said that white students receive $23 billion more than black and brown students yearly. $23 billion. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the lack of state funding and all of those mechanisms. So what am I doing when I'm receiving $23 billion less a year? We have much data that shows that students in, you know, what we would consider low-performing schools have some of the most newest Teach for America. You know, this is the places where we're putting students who need the most with teachers who are the least experienced. I'm sure your listeners have heard reports of schools having 25, 30, 45 students in a classroom, right? We have to do the things first and foremost that we know works for education, for students, for children. These are children, right? We got to get back to the very idea that this is a child. This is one of the most precious things that we should be holding on to and protecting in a democracy. All children, not just black and brown children, all children. Right. That is what it, that's if you can't protect your children, if you can't educate your children in a democracy, then what, what is this thing? So we have to first do the, the things that we know. And then I think for me with the book, you know, I think is bold about the book is that it ends with this call for reparations, educational reparations. And what I try to argue in the book as, as a solution is to say, listen, if you believe that devaluing your home is cause for reparations, when banks devalue Black homes, when banks deny Black people home loans, when we think about mass incarceration, what Erica Minor would call targeted mass incarceration and police brutality, like we see those as, as levers for reparation. But what I would argue is before you are denied a home loan, before you are denied a business loan, before your home is devalued, you are educated as a Black person in America schools. And that right there is cause for reparations because you are actually impacting my lifelong earning potential. When I'm sitting in schools where I can't breathe because of the air quality, when I'm sitting in schools where I can't get enriching and thoughtful and rigorous, rigorous curriculum, when I'm sitting in schools where I can't get Black teachers, when I'm sitting in schools with policies that push me out, when I'm sitting in schools filled with police officers but no nurses and social workers, you are creating an environment, you are designing an environment for my failure. 
And then you got the audacity, right? To look at me and say I failed? No, you set up the conditions for failure. Same thing as you set up the conditions to incarcerate me. You set up the conditions so I don't have a bank loan, so I can't get a home loan. These are the same conditions. They're just playing out in education. And if we understand that and can, and can, 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 can conceptualize that, then we must think about what repair looks like. And another word for reparations is repair. And so what I'm arguing is that if you understand the education system, the last four years of reform, repair looks like reparations. But the one thing I always want to be clear is that I think compensation is, is, is important. Yes. But also reparations mean you're going to end the harm and you're going to try to create a system that does less harm. And that is also what we want in reparations. We just don't want to check. We want to check. It's important. But we also want systems and structures to work for all children, for everyone. So reparations actually is a way in which where it betters democracy. Because what we're asking for is world-class schools. Everybody wins if we have world-class schools. What we're asking yep. for is you know, build world-class schools. That means there's thousands of jobs that will be built if we start to build world-class stu- schools for students. What we're asking for is for teachers to make an unbelievable wage, not just above a living wage, but a wage that gives you the might of an educator in this country. That means white women win flourish because they're picking up all the teachers, right? If you think about what we're asking for, for black children actually will impact, just like every reform effort we've had in this country, it will impact white folks too and better their living situation, better their children, because in a democracy, we are all connected. You know, but Dr. Love, in my experience, even when it benefits them, they just don't want to see. Some people just don't want to see somebody else win. That's it. It's just like, you know, like, and so to your point. I want Obamacare. People actually rather die. There's a great book by John Van Wazell called, you know, Dying of Whiteness. And he goes out and interviews people. And they're like, I don't want Obamacare. They're like, he's like, you're dying. Well, I don't want Obamacare because if I give Obamacare, then the, the immigrants and the black folks are going to get Obamacare. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but sir, you're dying. But we still have to move forward with policy. Even well, the, though- and also the reason why we build, right? Because, because we know that and we have the experience and history telling us exactly what is going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. this is why we build political power. This is why we stay civically engaged. This is why we do it. It's just like, you know, sometimes people, you know, white people bristle when I say this, like in speeches and like in front of them or whatever. And I was like, my, I'm not here. I'm not here to deliver you. Right. Like that's your white Jesus role. That's like me. I'm not here to make you more comfortable and to appeal to your heart as a human being to treat me. Nope. I'm building political power and I'm taking it for myself. Right. So like, that's like, you know, that passive role. Um, Thankfully, I don't live in a time where, you know, me being as vocal and engaged or whatever um, is a danger to my life and to, you know, my family. And so I'm going to use that. Like, I'm going to use the voice and I'm going to use the action. So what do we do, Dr. Love? What, how do we wrestle control? And again, not being a passive um, participant, not, you know, trying to appeal to, you know, somebody's uh, heart and would you kindly, sir, give us free and public education that, you know, sets us up for generational success, right? But really sort of building for our own selves that public education that 
equitable education that we want for future generations? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. I, I think we're at a moment right now where we have to be very clear that we need to organize, right? We, we are letting a small group of parents, we're letting a small group of institutions really shape public education and more importantly, shape black education without our voices. Right. So we have to get organized. We have to start meeting in basements. We have to start meeting in churches. We have to start taking, talking about what we want for our children, what we want in our schools. And we're there. This is, these are our schools too. These are our tax dollars too. And so we got to be very clear. We got to be talking to principals. Like right now, you know, this is, I mean, second day of school. We have to be talking to principals as black parents. This is what I want for my child. This is who my child is. And I got to be talking to other Black parents saying, hey, this is what we want our children to learn in these schools. This is what we think is important in these schools. These are public schools. And we have the right to have our children educated and learn particular type of things. These are our schools, too. And so I think it's time for us to truly get organized and see public education as a critical issue, just like we see we think, you know, racism in this country is a critical issue. We think police brutality in this country is a critical issue. And they are. But we have to understand that education is just as critical and we have to be fighting just as hard for a robust, a thoughtful, a loving, a critical, a critical thinking type of education for black and brown children. We got to get organized. Well, you know, definitely I'm having you back, right? Because we have to, I, I have to read the book, first of all. And then um, when I come back with my highlights, <laughs> we're going to talk a bit more about um, what else you cover. And I encourage everybody to get it. You know, I don't think you could read too much on this subject because as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, it is so intricately tied to our future. It is tied to our politics, right? The fact that you, you know, one of the reasons I started the show is people always talk about civics, but they talk about it in the context of schools for young people and not adults. So if you know they took civics out of school, right, then what are we doing in our communities in order to teach the active civic engagement that we know got lost after we lost that you know, presence of Black teachers who had a commitment to our kids and to our community. Like, we can also be active and create those spaces and create those opportunities. And so um, we got to, you know, we got to go back. <laughs> and if we pick up this book and listen to Dr. Love, we can get the historical context and add that with our political organization skills and, you know, make a change. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Now I have to get Dr. Patina Love, uh, Dr. Greg Carr, and Dr. Lester Young all on one show together for us to have a power conversation about public education, not through the lens of what is being done to us and the people we have to fight against, but what we can do in order to rebuild a public education system for ourselves and for our communities, what that looks like, right? How do we rebuild um, 
in with our new tools, with the new resources, those of y'all in Nubia, y'all understand, like, how do we, how do we bring our bricks, as Karen says, and build something new uh, for our future generation? So I'm going to work on that. We got to do an education town hall, and we got to get the three of them together, and we need to talk about that and talk about our future. But thanks to all of you for making it to class here on Sunday Civics. Thanks for you who have been listening while I took my Black August of rest and listened to some fire episodes that we had um, to revisit. And I will be back all this fall with brand new shows and brand new guests. So thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back next Sunday with more that you can use to be civically engaged. Have a great one. Oh,